welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, good morning, everyone. Doing things a little different today. I'm going to talk for a few minutes, and then we're going to have a time to respond and to continue to worship God. And again, it is just so fun to be here, to be able to see so many people, to be able to see people that, uh, frankly, haven't seen before, maybe are new. We're thankful that you're here. This is such a fascinating and fun journey, but again, I'm glad that you are are joining us as we are seeking God together. And I'd like us to begin today by working the muscles of our imagination for just a moment. I'd like to imagine with me, for you to imagine with me, that this gathering today is a wedding, that we are here for a wedding, a joyous wedding in this whole area that we're currently sitting in is set up for a beautiful wedding. And right down here, right in front of this stage, I'd like you to imagine that there is a gigantic hardwood dance floor. And right now, the most beautiful music you've ever heard is playing. So some Johnny Cash song. But the most beautiful music you've ever heard is playing. And there's people on this dance floor at this gorgeous wedding. This scene is playing out in front of you, and you're sitting where you are, but off to the side a little bit, and you're watching, and you're listening to this gorgeous music, and you're having a wonderful time. And imagine in the middle of this dance floor, the grandfather of the bride is dancing with one of his son's seven-year-old daughter. The grandfather of the bride is dancing with his granddaughter. They're holding hands just out in front of each other like this. And she is leading. Do this, Grandpa. And he does it. Now do this, Grandpa. And he does it. And then he says something like, you know, Grandpa can't keep doing this stuff or he's going to pay for it for a week. And then she says, do you like to dance, Grandpa? And they're just kind of swaying back and forth. Beautiful scene. Beautiful music. Perfect moment. And she says, do you like to dance? Grandpa, and he says, only when my dance partner is as beautiful as you. For the next few minutes, they twist and they turn and they swing their arms together. And a dance expert might critique them for harshly or critique them harshly for violating every dance rule in the book. But everyone at this gorgeous wedding smiles and dabs tears out of their eyes for having witnessed sheer glory breaking through the clouds that so often hover over this life and world. And I believe your relationship with Jesus Christ and mine resembles very closely this imaginary dance. Does your God dance in the way just described? Does he walk across the room and see you and offer his hand and say, would you dance with me? Does he pick you out of a crowd and ask you to dance? I'm not much of a dancer, as all of you who have seen me do it well know. I'm not much of a dancer. But it enlarges my soul to imagine my relationship with God as a creative and unscripted dance. No predetermined steps. There's no sense of, okay, put your arm here, put your arm there, ready? One, two, three. It's not that. 
No choreography, but a free-flowing dance. This enlarges my soul because this imagery depends on a particular vision of who God is, a vision of who I am to him, and a vision of what relating to him is all about. And that vision of who I am and who God is and of what relating to him is all about, that that dance imagery evokes in me is not always my go-to or default vision. So I like this metaphor, this imagery. Last weekend, we began a new series called Conversions. And the gist of this series is the ongoing growth and conversion of people who claim to be Christian. Those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, in other words, being open to the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of conversion in the details of our lives, being born again and again and again, in the everyday attitudes and perceptions and postures of our lives. And this call to ongoing conversion uh, is an invitation to a creative and unscripted dance with God. It is not a wooden, scripted, preset dance. This ongoing conversion is an invitation to dance with God, not a soul-crushing duty to do something for God. And it's crucial as we continue in this to remember the imagery, the invitation, the wonder of what God is inviting us into in this process of conversion. Looking at it from another angle, in this series we are considering ways in which we get stuck as Christians and become stagnant as followers of Jesus. And we end up settling for a life of wooden and scripted religious steps instead of a life of dancing. And the Apostle Paul describes this exquisite dance with God in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. And I want to read these couple of verses in the message translation of the Bible. They are included in your app if you have a device that can get to that. But these are absolutely magnificent words that describe this dance and describe this idea of conversion, and just let these wash over you as you hear these life-giving words from the Apostle Paul. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old, constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. God is personally present, a living spirit, nothing between us and God. Sounds a bit like grandpa and granddaughter on the dance floor. That old constricting legislation and legalism is obsolete. We're free from it. Let's just dance, honey. Don't worry about the moves. Let's just enjoy this. And along the way, our lives become brighter and more beautiful. We convert and become like the God with whom we dance. If that does not hit you as, could it be? Are you serious? If that doesn't hit you as an invitation, then I'm not doing my job. This is what this series is about. So as we continue with part two or second week, I'd like to ask you to stand 
for today's scripture reading. It comes from John chapter 6. It's at the end of a long chapter where Jesus has been teaching, and I'm going to read from verses 60 to 70. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do, not, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hopefully you had the chance, some of you anyway, to read all of chapter 6. I think uh, a suggestion was sent out in some form this week to read the entire chapter. But one of the takeaways I find in this story in chapter 6 is that Jesus understands reality more than anyone else who has ever lived. Not religious reality. Not the reality of, quote, the spiritual life as we often refer to it. Jesus understands reality with a capital R more than anyone who has ever lived. And as a rabbi, as a teacher, Jesus helps his followers redefine reality in their everyday lives and redefine it through him. So start wherever you want. Reality about every aspect of life is reimagined and redefined through Christ. Reality about Roman oppression for the first hearers of these words would get redefined through Jesus. Reality about politics today, the season we are in, gets redefined through Jesus. Reality about relationships is defined and reimagined through Jesus. Reality about pain and healing from those relationships is redefined through him. Sometimes Rabbi Jesus teaches his disciples by setting forth principles and offering insights on the nature of reality. And if you read through all of chapter 6, you'll see he's saying things in a teaching kind of didactic way to teach his hearers the way of reality, the way of kingdom. Uh, he proposes truths, in other words, to redefine reality in his hearers. But one of his favorite ways to teach was to tell so stories. He called them parables. Have you ever noticed in this little area here, there are four foundational trees. There's one there, there's one there, there's one over here, and there's one there. And those four foundational trees, and off Jesus would go. And he'd use what was right in front of him to draw people's attention to the greater reality those things in front of them were pointing to. He called them parables. Another favorite teaching method of Jesus was to ask questions. And Jesus' 
propensity to ask questions is our focus today. When we add up all the questions Jesus asks in the Gospels, including the duplicates, and there are many duplicates, he asks over 300 questions in the four Gospels. Jesus is quite fond of questions, maybe more fond of questions than answers. Now, he certainly gives some answers, no doubt about that. But he seems to prefer questions, maybe because questions have a way of personalizing one's discovery of reality. You know how it is if someone tells you what reality is, we all have kind of this blocking mechanism. But if we discover it for ourselves uh, through a good question from someone we trust, we have a better chance of owning that reality. Today we're talking about Christians converting from answers to questions. Converting from being those who need answers to being those who embrace the questions and live with the questions and even delight in the questions. Converting from being those who close down conversations by pushing answers instead of those who invite conversations by encouraging questions. See, there's a dynamic here, and today we are unashamedly and actively pushing against the dynamic, and the dynamic is what we'll call answer Christians. We're pushing against answer Christians. Christians who think they have all or most of the answers. Answer Christians who need answers. They like to fill in the blanks. They like to make the world and faith in this world much simpler and neater than maybe it actually is. Maybe we could say they have a tendency to strip the mystery out of the faith and remove the transcendent from the faith. Answer Christians turn the Bible into a book of answers instead of an invitation to a dance. In a complex world where there are a myriad of issues and there is no longer a faith foundation from which people approach these issues, to go around wielding answers without first living with and sitting in the questions drives people away from God. And it drives people away from church. Think of the question we have already referenced today. What is reality? Just simply think of that question. What is reality? Dallas Willard often said that this question, what is reality, is one of the four big questions human beings are always asking. What is reality? Imagine if we were just to take some time to reflect on this one question as Christ followers, the many layers that we might discover, the many rabbit holes that we might end up going down, as we try to tease out this question, what is reality, in our everyday circumstances? Well, Jesus was trying to cultivate a people who would do this. And so today is about converting from answers to questions. Now, we've talked already about the value of questions, but let me mention two other transformative purposes of questions, or why Jesus might have employed questions as one of his main teaching strategies. The first is because questions reveal our true selves and our actual intentions. In John chapter 6, Jesus is trying to get with his disciples. He wants to have time with them, but larger crowds keep showing up, so he goes along with it, and he teaches them about reality. He says things like this in John chapter 6 to this vast crowd of people. He says, I am the bread of life. 
These are all Jewish people, mostly Jewish people. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Right away, if you're a Jewish person who didn't skip school, something's going through your head. He said, what? I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh I will give for the life of the world. He's talking to people very familiar with the story of manna in the desert. This manna was given to the Israelites when they were driven out of Egypt. But Jesus is redefining reality. He's pulling the focus onto himself as the true bread that has come down from heaven. So think of what's going on in this crowd as this long and well-known story is taking on new meaning by this guy claiming to be the bread of life that has come down from heaven. Many disciples are listening, many more than just the original 12. This is a large crowd of people. And after they hear Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6, John says many of these disciples respond, and here's what they say. This was in our scripture reading. They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they don't mean hard as in, boy, that's kind of hard to understand. That's not what they're saying. This is not an intellectual exercise they're trying to get through. That's not what they mean by hard. By hard, they mean harsh. They mean offensive. They mean, wait a second, what this guy just said is a head-on collision with what I already think and with what I already think is true. So this is the beginning of the end for these folks. They're beginning to realize how Rabbi Jesus redefines reality, and they're not sure they're interested. This is too much. And Jesus is aware of their insecurity. He's got them right where he wants them. He's got them right at the brink of loosening their grip on the religious system they have clutched so hard for so long, and they believe so firmly. So Jesus asks a question. He says, does this offend you? Now, it did offend them. It offended them to the nth degree because he was reinterpreting and redefining a story that was central to the identity of the Jewish people. Does this offend you? Think for a minute off the cuff here. What do you imagine Jesus would have wanted them to say? You're darn right it offends me. Who do you think you are? Something like that with maybe a little mafia accent to it would have been perfect. His question is a bright light illuminating their intentions to find out if they want a Messiah of their own making who will respond to their commands or if they want the Messiah. So a lot of this got me thinking about Julie's and my relationship. Every now and then on certain well-timed occasions, usually in the middle of some disagreement, Julie will ask me a hard question. Not hard because it's hard to understand, but harsh. She doesn't even have to ask it harsh. She rarely does, but it is harsh. It's offensive. It's disruptive. When she does this, she makes me mad. I don't like her when she asks one of these questions. Why? Because her questions sometimes reveal the more authentic story of what is happening in me at any given moment. She knows me 
so she knows there are complicated motives behind what I say and what I do. And now and then she asks a question to get at those things. And it's like a bomb exploding within me. And I don't like it. And I don't want it. And I want her to stop doing it. So Julie, I know you're watching, so stop doing that. Just play my game and all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. So here's the thing, if Julie can get to me, if she can get down past all the nonsense and look, I don't care if you're a pastor and aren't you so high and mighty, if she can get down underneath all that to the real me, how much more can the author of reality get to me, the real me? And Jesus, in wonderfully gracious and inviting ways, wants to get to the real me and to the real you, so he asks questions. Jesus used questions not so much to solicit answers, but to awaken people to the truth hiding in the nearby shadows, right behind their right answers. Jesus asks questions to invite and help people become vulnerable, open, real people of the unscripted dance. Does this offend you? Yeah, this offends me. Help me understand this. So many of the questions Jesus was asking were designed to get people to release their idea of a right answer and get them down into the truth about who they thought they were, who they thought God was, and what they really wanted. See, our actual intentions are not always, maybe not often, what we say they are. It's easy to say what we want, but it's much more challenging to say what we actually want. It takes more work to say what we actually want. It takes more time to identify what we really want. And no one today is looking for more work and no one today feels like they have enough time. So anything requiring work and time is bound to get short-circuited and therein lies the challenge. We don't need more work, we don't have the time, so we'll settle for the stuff up here. Think about it, Jesus asks questions in the Gospels like this, what is it you want? What do you want me to do for you, he says. He says to some people following him, he goes, what were you searching for? Why were you searching for me? He says to a group at one point, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He says to others, do you wanna get well? Sometimes he's asking people these kinds of questions. He's asking these kinds of questions to those who are in desperate need. He asks a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? He asks a guy who spent nearly four decades paralyzed and unable to walk. This is the question Jesus asked this guy. Do you want to get well? Well, no, I'd like to remain immovable. But I would like a large deep dish pizza with everything on it except black olives. Why ask the obvious question? Do you want to get well? You've been laying here for 38 years. Do you want to get well? What is up with that? He asks the obvious question because it's not obvious. It's not obvious this guy wants to get well. His real intention needs to be brought to the surface. And so Jesus uses questions 
to reveal our true selves and actual intentions. After hearing this hard teaching in John chapter 6, what we read a moment ago, many of the disciples turn back and leave Jesus for good. They go, forget this, I'm out. And then he turns to those who remain and he says this, you do not want to leave too, do you? Oh, no, of course not. See, that's answer, Christian. Jesus asks this question, you don't want to leave too, do you? Knowing Judas Iscariot is one of the guys who remains. And knowing all of these remaining disciples are beginning to realize Jesus redefines realities in ways they cannot, cannot even begin to comprehend. He's beginning to turn them inside out, and he's got much more turning to do, so he checks in with them. You sure you don't want to leave too? What's the answer? You know, maybe I do want to leave. I'm not sure I signed up for this. This is getting weird, Jesus. I mean, this is undoing everything I've ever known. That whole manna thing you were doing back there? I mean, I've heard that story for years. I thought I had that one dialed in. But then you reworked it. And I'm reeling from what you were saying. So maybe I should leave. Maybe I'm not really up for this. See, that guy is ready to follow. Oh, no, of course not. That person, I don't know if they are following or if they're ready. Because Jesus wants us to land in the reality of what is actually going on because Jesus is about reality. There's a C.S. Lewis quote in your app. I plead with you, beg you, implore you, whatever else, bribe you to read that quote. I'm going to read it out loud. It's an amazing quote from a brilliant mind. Here's what he said. If conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. And after one's original conversion, every time one thinks one has made an advance, that is the test to apply. Fine feelings, new insights, greater interest in religion mean nothing unless they make our actual behavior better. Just as in an illness, quote, feeling better is not much good if the thermometer shows that your temperature is still going up. In that sense, the outer world is quite right to judge Christianity by its results. Christ told us to judge by results. A tree is known by its fruit, or as we say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. The wartime posters told us that careless talk costs lives. It is equally true that careless lives cost talk. Our careless lives set the outer world talking, and we give them grounds for talking in a way that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. So, he asks questions to reveal the actual self and the actual intentions within us. The other reason that he asks questions is to inspire curiosity and wonder. Jesus asks questions to disrupt our perceptions to disrupt our quick 
memorized answers, to disrupt our systems, to disrupt the things we think we know. And he does this in part so we do not tribalize God and make him small and fit him into the compartment we have built for him. He does this to keep us curious. He does this to keep us amazed. He does this to keep us wide-eyed and astonished. He couldn't possibly have done that. In John chapter 8, a story we've referred to many times, it's the story of a woman who was caught in adultery, and everyone on the scene was absolutely certain they knew what God wanted them to do. There was no doubt about it. There was no question what had to happen. You've got to feel this. The Bible said it. This is what she's got coming, or so they thought, and that settled it. So it was time to rock and roll and deal with this sinful woman. But there was only one problem. Jesus' idea of who God was and who this woman was and what needed to happen, Jesus' idea of reality, in other words, was 180 degrees the opposite of what this crowd of certain Christians thought and knew should happen. And when it's all said and done, Jesus asks the woman a question. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? When Jesus finished a time of storytelling and teaching, the Bible occasionally says, and the crowds were amazed and astounded by his teaching. Such a provocative insight. They'd been taught reality. But it seems what Jesus taught was refreshing and surprising reality. What Jesus taught then was like a cold cup of ice water on a blistering hot day. It was not what they had heard before. It was not the same old heavy-handed rules and religion. See, questions have a unique way of evoking curiosity and stoking wonder. Questions have a way of ushering us back toward astonishment. Questions have a way of keeping us from the prison of our certainties. So imagine this woman, this adulterous woman. Women, where are they? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Think about it. A minute ago, a crowd the size of the crowd here was standing there with rocks in hand, convinced, certain they knew what to do ready to mete out justice in the name of God, they were going to mete out this justice. And now those rocks are all laying in the dirt, and the people have all gone home. And this woman has a new life stretched right out in front of her, from death to life, because Jesus was there with her. Astounding. Astounding. Back in our John 6 passage, Jesus asks the disciples who remained after a bunch left, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know what that means? You have words that define reality. You are the doorway into reality. We've come to believe 
and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amazed. Wonder. Peter's beginning to realize Jesus is about reality. He's beginning to realize everything changes in light of Jesus' kingdom reality. So you each got a card when you came in here today. A little blue index card, I believe it was. And I'd like you to grab that card. And if you don't have a card, raise your hand. We have some DoorDash people who will bring a card to you if you raise your hand. There's one up here. Ashley, is Ashley here somewhere? Or someone representing her? Okay. Uh, there are hands up here. Elizabeth needs one. Other hands. Everybody's going to want one of these. This is a week-long experiment. There's some cards over there or hands over there. There's one in front of the door. I feel like a Southern Baptist. There's a hand. There's a hand. Wouldn't be so bad. Okay. So we thought one good way to bring this message back into our everyday lives was to hand out to you questions of Jesus. These are actual questions Jesus asks in the Gospels. And here's the idea, that we randomly handed out these questions of Jesus with confidence that God's Spirit will get you and give you the question you need. And through that question, he will speak to you, he will awaken you, or he will stir in you in some way through the question you have on the card. The hope is not so much to come up with a neat answer to the question you received, rather to sit with the question for a while, all week long, actually, to kind of sit with the question, to pray through the question, to invite God's Spirit to open you up through the question. The question is designed then to be a gateway to an encounter with God. You can see the reference to where, we, where it is in the Gospels. It's in the NIV. If you're interested, you can go back and look at the context of that. These are only some of the questions. Some of you have the same as others. That wasn't really the point. I think we had 39 of them that have been distributed. But God works this way. My word to you would be, what is God saying to me through this question? What is he asking me in this question? What prayers are coming up in me as I reflect upon this question? And my suggestion is, is throughout this week to take this event and work it into the fabric of everyday life is to have this question in front of you in some way, shape, or form throughout the week as part of your prayer time in the morning, as something you think about through your day, somewhere in your car, or wherever you might go, and begin to pray through and think through and meditate on and ask God for wisdom in the question that you received on this card and see how he shows up and listen for how he may be speaking to you. Let's pray together. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would hear the voice of God through the question you received. That question in your hand was asked by Jesus to someone, to some group, a long time ago. So much of the human experience remains the same as it did when he first asked the question. How might God meet you in that question this week? How might he turn you inside out? How might he begin to invite you into his reality, his kingdom, through that question? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather together to worship you, to be with you, to 
open ourselves before you, to be in a posture of receptivity, to slow down and just simply be with you. I'd like to invite you to recognize that we are entering into a time of response, a time of what's God doing in you, in us? What's he saying through this idea of questions? How is he astounding you? How do you need to be astounded? What are you holding on to? What answer? What are you clutching that you simply refuse to let go of? And my encouragement to you in these few minutes is to simply be in a posture of, Jesus, speak to me in this. Let me hear you. Get past my defenses and call forth the real me, my real intentions.